here using one of the Bibles that we provide. It is on page uh, 976. So last week we began our sermon series working through the book of Ephesians, and as you may remember, uh, one of the characteristics of the book of Ephesians is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses some very long sentences. And um, in verses 3 through 14, which we are heading into right now, is one of the longest sentences in all of Scripture. In our English Bibles, it's about five sentences, uh, but in Greek, it's one long sentence over 200 words. And we're going to go through this one sentence over the next three weeks. It's packed with meaning and import, and so it's good for us to slow down, enjoy it, and to savor it. And so today, we're going to focus on verses 3 to 6. Next week, we're going to focus on verses 7 through 10, and the following week, 11 through 14. But if you would, please stand with me as we read God's Word out of love and reverence for His holy, infallible, inerrant Word. And here now from Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And friends, so ends the reading of God's word. And what do we know about God's word? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray together. Oh, great and merciful God, oh, our Father, this is indeed your word. And so we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Open our ears and our hearts to receive your word. Would you comfort us? Would you convict us? Would you encourage us as we seek to glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, kids, as I was growing up, one of my favorite movies was The Wizard of Oz. I probably watched that movie over and over and over. And as I'm sure you know, that story, that movie is about uh, a girl named Dorothy who grew up in Kansas who was transported to the land of Oz, where she is united with three friends. She is united with a scarecrow who has no brain, a tin man who has no heart, and a lion that has no courage. And the four of them make their way to the Emerald City to find the wizard uh, who will give them what they are looking for. And along the way, their life is constantly under threat of attack from the wicked witch of the West. And when and, and near, at the end, they finally reach the Emerald City. And when they are uh, Seeking to find the wizard, a curtain is pulled back, and they see the man who is behind the mystery, the man who was their hope uh, to give them everything that they might need. And friends, as uh, Christians, the Christian life is one that is often difficult. Um, we, we talked last week about how God has set apart his people as holy for himself, and as such, we as God's people, are out of accord with the world. And um, Scripture pr promises us that we will suffer and even be hated by the world. And as we look at the uh, events that unfold uh, in the midst of the world, we see things that are out of accord with God's Word, and we feel hopeless. 
to do anything about it. We feel under attack. And what's more, we can see unbelievers or haters of God thriving, prospering, um, doing extremely well in the midst of this world. And we say, well, what in the world is going on? And it's in the midst of that, in the midst of our experience, that Paul writes this letter to us where he pulls back the cover to a certain extent to show us a glorious reality that is actually going on that we that is beyond our eyes. And it's one that ought to give us confidence and courage and hope in the midst of our experience. And that, that, that singular point is this, that God himself has chosen us to be his children, and his children bless him because he has blessed them with every spiritual blessing in his son, Jesus Christ. Um, I mentioned that this, this uh, passage comes in the context of verses 3 to 14, which is this long benediction, this benediction of praise, this eulogy of sorts that uh, Paul gives to our great God. And this uh, passage, 3 to 14, has been uh, described with many different wonderful metaphors. And two of my favorites are these. One is it's a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting color. And if you prefer a musical analogy, it is a, a musical adoration comparable to an overture of an opera which contains successive melodies that are to follow. He, he hints at where he's going to go throughout the course of this letter. And the first three, uh, three to six verses, or I'm sorry, verses three to six, uh, he focuses on the work of God the Father in choosing his people for himself before the foundation of the world, in eternity past. And in verses 7 through 12, he focuses on the work of God the Son in redeeming the people for himself in the present. In verses 13 and 14, he focuses on the work of God the Holy Spirit in sealing us for the future. And we're going to focus on verses 3 to 6. And as we look at that, even that we can break into three groups and we look at and organize it by the three verbs that we see there. That we are blessed, that we are chosen, and that we are predestined. Blessed, chosen, and predestined. So let's start with the first one, blessed. He begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, tell me times do you see the word blessing in that verse? I see three. Blessed be the God and Father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's a lot of blessing. I think there's a point that he's trying to make there, isn't there? That we are blessed. And if you're like me, my mind immediately goes to say, well, what's the blessing? What is it? What is it? that he? How has he blessed me? What is he? Uh, what has he given me? But notice what Paul does. Paul doesn't start with the blessing, does he? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even as we approach God's word, it sometimes reveals how self-centered we can be, how self-focused, where we're focused on what am I going to get, rather than focusing on who God is. We're often like kids whose father or mother went away for a long business trip, and when they get back, the first thing out of our mouths isn't, oh, I'm so glad to see you. It's, hey, what'd you you bring me? What, did you bring me a gift? Did you give me a present? But Paul begins with this exuberant response. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He brings praise. He knows that he recognizes that 
this God that we serve, this God that we know, this God that we love has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And the response, first and foremost, must be to bless him and praise him. It's much like in the Psalms uh, where we were taught, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He, he begins with that same type of benediction. He, he is saying that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, that this God, this God who is over all things, has opened up the storehouse of his blessing, and he has poured it out on us in Jesus Christ so that the flood of blessing would come upon us. And that Paul's response is, how can I do anything but bless this God? Praise God for his bountiful presence, his bountiful gifts to me. And so he begins that way, but he doesn't end that way. So our God blesses us, and he wants us to know what those blessings are. And so he reveals those things to us. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This blessing that he's so excited about are spiritual blessings. That's very important for us to recognize. Spiritual blessings. These are not material blessings. These are not physical blessings. Paul says that they are spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Or uh, more literally, more woodenly, in the Greek it is just the heavenlies. It is a spiritual realm. He has blessed us with everything that could possibly be blessed in this spiritual realm that um, and he has given them to us in Christ. Now students, uh, you may remember when we were doing the intro to Ephesians last week, I mentioned that the Ephesian people were superstitious and they were. And you may in talking about a spiritual realm, a heavenly realm, you may think that that seems a bit superstitious. We're in the 21st century. We're Americans. We love our science. We love our hard facts. But it's not superstitious if it's really true. And for Paul, this heavenly realm, this spiritual realm is just as true as this pulpit is hard, is solid and and right before your eyes. It is in an existence that's there. Perhaps you remember from reading um, in 2 Corinthians, Apostle Paul talks about this third heaven, you might say, well, what in the world is the third heaven? Well, the first heaven are, is the air, the sky above you. The second heaven is the stars and the moon and the sun beyond that. But the third heaven was the spiritual realm. They would, they would think of the spiritual realm beyond the heavens, beyond the sky. It is the realm where there's this cosmic battle at, at play, where Christ himself dwells where the spiritual forces of evil dwell. You may remember that in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes this. He says that our, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This heavenly place is a word that is unique to Paul, and it's unique to Ephesians, but he uses it five times. He wants us to know that there is a spiritual realm at play, that there are forces of evil and forces of good. And it's in that realm that Paul says that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that's important for us to know because Paul is hinting to us that we, as God's people, are dual citizens. We're citizens both of this realm, this world, but we are also citizens of a spiritual realm. We are citizens of a heavenly realm in Christ Jesus. And other biblical writers hint at this as well. If you remember, uh, the Apostle Peter says that we are elect exiles. We are citizens of God's kingdom that are exiles in the midst of this world. Hebrews talks about as though we are pilgrims uh, without a home on our way to the promised land, looking for a better country. And the Apostle Paul says that we are ambassadors, if you remember, ambassadors of Christ, where we are speaking into this world with the message of God's kingdom. And so it's important for us to realize that when it says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, these are blessings in the heavenly realms. These are not material blessings. God is not a genie, Aladdin's genie, who is giving us our every wish. This is a, uh, these are blessings that are a currency of a different economy. Uh, these are not, these aren't blessings that you can cash out at any bank and go pay off your mortgage. These are spiritual blessings for a spiritual world. And yet, I would assert to you they are much better than any material blessing that you could possibly get. For what material blessing doesn't disappoint, does not fail, does not become corrupt, does not disappear. But these blessings, these spiritual blessings we're told are uh, eternal, they are unfading, they are unchanging, they are secure, and they are glorious. They are, they are ours in Jesus Christ. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And I think it's also important to say that while we, these are spiritual blessings, there are times when God does bless his people with material blessings in this world when we live in accordance with the spiritual blessings that we've been given in Christ Jesus. And in fact, I would argue that if you would have any hope of experiencing the joy and satisfaction and success and blessing in this world, in this life, it would be that you would live in accordance with the spiritual blessings that you have received in Christ Jesus. Would you like to have a, a work, a, a job that is full of joy and success? Then let the truth of the fact that you have received every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus permeate your thinking and empower you in the midst of your job to do everything that you do in line with being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and allow Christ's word to change or condition how you think about success. You will have joy. You will have success in the midst of your job. Would you have your spouse, or would you have more intimacy in your marriage between your spouse? then I would encourage you to consider helping your spouse grasp the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ, in the love of God in Christ Jesus in their life. Help them to grasp the depth of the immense blessing that they have received in Christ Jesus and allow them to grow in intimacy with their God. And as they do, you will experience greater intimacy and joy in your marriage. Would you have your kids be more successful for their lives? 
Help them to understand who they are in Christ Jesus. Help them to understand the blessing that they have in Christ Jesus. And they will grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that it says that these are blessings in Christ. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And that's important because Christ himself is in this heavenly realm, this spiritual realm. And so we are located, Paul Paul sees us as located with him in the heavenly realms. We'll see that later in um, the book of Ephesians. But here we have these blessings in the spiritual realm because we are with him in that heavenly place. But secondly, and probably more importantly for us to see, is that when we, when we start to dig into what are these blessings that God has given us, the individual blessings are really just Paul unpacking for us what it means for us to be in Christ. The full blessing is that God himself has given us his, his son, Jesus Christ, and has united us to him, and in him is every spiritual blessing. This is, this is amazing news for us, that we have been given the fullness, the totality, the completeness of all the blessings of the Son of God himself. Those have been given to us in Jesus Christ. And so this, this, this God-man who existed in perfect union before the creation perfect union with God himself before the creation of the world this man who was the fulfillment of all of God's promises this man who came who was God himself and became a man and lived perfectly righteous who who died on our behalf who was raised on our behalf who ascended into God's presence who rules and sustains and preserves all of his creation all of the blessings in him, anything that could possibly be ours, anything that possibly exists as being part of him are ours. And those things are what Paul explains in the course of these uh, individual blessings. They are outworkings and implications of those benefits of being in Christ. And today we're going to look at two of those, which he talks about. And the first one is chosen, and the second one is predestined. So let's look at the first one. He says, he says, blessed be God and Father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So he says, even as, which shows us, tips us off to the fact that he's explaining what it means by these every spiritual blessings. And he says that we have been chosen in him. Uh, It says that he chose us in him he selected us. That word for chose is a word from which we get elect. Um, so we, we could say that he elected some. He chose some out of the world to be in him before the foundation of the world. This is in eternity past he has done this cho- choosing. And he gives a purpose that, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So he gives the, the time. He says who does the work and he explains the purpose. This is what we call our great doctrine of election, that God from eternity past chose a people for himself and intended for them to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, this is probably one of the most disputed doctrines that we have, one that is not very popular. 
It's not fair, people say. How could God choose some people and not others? It's not fair. Are you, are you telling me that this God takes some people kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven and that there's other people who want to get in and he is choosing not to shower his grace upon them? These are legitimate questions and questions that we ought to take time to talk through because they are serious. It says what it says, and sometimes we tend to reconcile this with a mindset of foreknowledge. And what we mean by that is that when, we, when it says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, people reconcile that by saying, well, that's because God, in his infinite knowledge, before the foundation of the world, looked down the span of time, and he saw who would choose him when he revealed his grace to them. And in response to their response, God chose them to be his own. But Scripture does say that God does have infinite foreknowledge, but that is somewhat beside the point here, because whether or not God sees what's happening, that doesn't decide who is the actual initiator of this faith. It could be that God sees because he is actually giving faith. It could be that he sees because they are responding to faith. So the question is, which one is it? But if we think about the whole of Scripture, even the passage that we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we have to assert that it is God who is doing the choosing. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that the things of God are spiritually discerned. He says that the things of the gospel are foolishness to mankind, to the natural man. That Scripture says that no one seeks after God. Scripture says that all have turned away. Scripture says the fool says in his heart there is no God. And so um, it's, it's hard to see how God could uh, see somebody who is going to choose God when apart from God they will never choose God. It says that they are spiritually discerned. God has to open their eyes to see the truth of his gospel. And notice what it says. It says that um, he chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless before him. There's a purpose there, that we would be holy and blameless. If the purpose is to be holy and blameless, then that suggests that apart from him we are unholy, that we are blameworthy. And so if we are unholy and blameworthy, how could we by our righteousness come to Christ? What would we come with but our unholiness and our unworthiness? And God says that only the holy can come into his presence. Only His, the holy have any share of who he is. And think about your own situation. Think about your own life. What is it that brought you here to get out of bed on Sunday morning uh, when your neighbors are at home still in bed? Was it because you were smarter than them? That you had the, the, the wisdom to understand God's word and to accept it? I would assert to you that there are smarter people than you and me that deny the truth of the gospel. Is it that you are holier than those people, that you have, your moral rightness caused you to come to that? I would assert to you that there are unbelievers who are 
better behaved than we are? Um, is it because you grew up in a Christian home and you figured it out? But how many of us have brothers or sisters that grew up under those same circumstances with the same parents, the same churches, and the same teaching and come to different conclusions? What is it about one person versus another that causes them to choose it versus another? Friends, what we have to assert is that there's nothing in you, nothing in me that brought about the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. It, it requires the initiation, the initiative of God himself to reveal himself to his people, to uh, understand these things, to accept these things, to put our faith in these things. There's nothing in us at all. That's what Deuteronomy chapter 7 said, wasn't it? It wasn't because we were great. It was because we were the weakest. And that's what 1 Corinthians 1 said. It's not because we were wise. He chose the foolish, the things that were not, the weakest. If anything, God chooses not the ones that are the smart ones or the pretty ones or the big ones. He chooses the most foolish, the weakest, the most vile. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said about himself? I'm the chief of sinners, the chief of sinners. Why does he do this? So that his power would be made perfect in our weakness. Well, then there's the argument, well, how is this fair? How is it fair? Because maybe there's people out there that want to believe in the Lord Jesus, who want to come to Christ, and God is saying no, where there's other people where God is dragging them into the kingdom. To this, we have to think about what Paul said in Romans chapter 9, which was our law passage, where Paul says, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Who are you, O man, to declare, to accuse the just judge of the universe of injustice? God himself is not interested in a philosophical or ethical debate about his ways. There are times where we must accept his word and submit to it, because it is what God has given to us, rather than arguing and trying to figure it out. God takes this initiative, and he has to take this initiative, because at the same time, when God speaks to us this way, he also lets us know that he is not turning anyone away. He is not unjust. He says that no one seeks God. We are all like sheep that have gone astray. We are all under God's judgment. If we ask for justice, we don't know what we're asking for because what we're asking for is that all of us would be condemned to God's wrath forever and ever. What we want is God's mercy and his grace. We want his grace in the midst of justice, that we want Christ to be counted righteous and us to be counted righteous in him. Uh, we don't want the justice that w- would separate us from God forever and ever. Apart from God's intervening grace, apart from God entering into us, um, and apart from that Holy Spirit, none of us would accept the Lord Jesus Christ. And for God to take that initiative, he has to choose to take that initiative. It has to be a part of his will, his intent to do those things. And when the Holy Spirit chooses to take that action, Then he opens our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. He opens our hearts to adore this God who saves us. And he opens our hands to grab tightly 
to Christ for our salvation. I mentioned The Wizard of Oz. I, I think the very first time that that movie was in the movie theater must have been an amazing event for the viewers because if you remember, before that, most of the movies were in black and white. And in fact, that movie begins in black and white until they reach the land of Oz, at which point the movie's in its full technicolor glory. And friends, when the Holy Spirit works in the hearts and the minds of his people, we see the dazzling beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And apart from that work of that Holy Spirit, we will never see that. We will be clouded in foolishness. Well, another argument against this uh, doctrine is that, well, it negates the point of evangelism. We don't, well, if God's doing all the choosing and he's, he's doing all the initiation, then we don't need to share the gospel anymore. But is that really true? Because the Apostle Paul is the one who wrote this book. And he's telling us about this great doctrine. And the Apostle Paul is the one who evangelized these very people. And he's the one who preached to them for two to three years on a regular basis. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says that how we receive God's word is evidence of whether or not we are of the elect. He wrote, We know that he chose you, brothers, because our word came to you not as simple words, but with a demonstration of power and with the Holy Spirit and with great conviction. Um, Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing. Preaching and evangelism are the means by which God calls his chosen people. They are chosen in the course of, or they are chosen before the foundation of the world and called in the course of of the span of their lives. And that works itself out as God's people, as the church proclaims the gospel of grace, as they declare the hope of the gospel, and God gives his elect the eyes to see, to receive this grace that they are here preached and proclaimed. And in the course of time, that is evidence of their election. It is it's the necessary means that God calls the elect to himself. And the last thing we need to see on this is that is that purpose. He says that he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. These are uh, two sides of a coin where he says that we ought to be holy. That is, there ought to be, there is a purity and we said last week that there was a that we are holy in Christ Jesus. We are set apart, and yet there is a working out of holiness. We are made holy as we are renewed in the image of Christ. The other side of it is blameless. It is dealing with our guilt and our you know, blame before our God. And we were chosen that we would be both holy and blameless. And like we said, the suggestion is apart from this choosing, we would be unholy and blameworthy. And so this is actually both a intent and it's a promise. It's an intent because we see that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in order that we would be holy and blameless apart from 
um, his choosing, we would not be holy and blameless. And we must be holy and blameless to dwell in God's presence. So it's an intent, but it's also a promise that we will be. If God has chosen us sovereignly before the foundation of the world, before even a single person had committed a sin against our God, and he has decided that his elect people will be holy and blameless, then you can be certain that you will be holy and blameless in his sight. And so it is both an intent and a promise. But how ought that fuel your pursuit of godliness and holiness? If you know that God has chosen you for that very purpose, that you would be holy and blameless. How could you not how could you possibly be slack in putting to death those sins and putting on righteousness and growing in grace? It ought to fuel everything that we do. But it's also important for us to see that holiness in and of itself is not the end goal. And this is important because this can trip us up. It trip the Pharisees up where the focus on holiness for holiness sake is was made the ultimate goal. And we can do that same thing. That's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is God himself. And we see that in the very next thing. If we were chosen in him, we were also predestined. Uh, he says, even as he chose us in him, uh, and he, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So we have chosen and predestined. And you might say, well, aren't those the same thing? Sometimes we talk about the doctrine of election. Sometimes we say predestination. We, we use those terms interchangeably, and they're similar, but they're not the same thing. Predestined talks about an end goal, a telos, a ultimate completion, whereas chosen talks about means. If you're thinking about logically which one is first, God is choosing those he has predestined. He has a definite end for those people. And he talks about his end. He says they are predestined, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Predestined us for adoption as sons in through Jesus Christ. So, sisters, don't get tripped up on this. Don't say, well, well, maybe this should have said adoption as sons and daughters. This isn't anti-female. God is certainly not anti-female, nor is God's word, nor is this passage. This is a glorious promise for us male and female. This whole concept of adoption was a Roman concept, not a Jewish concept, a Roman concept. And the Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen, so Paul understood what this meant. And adoption meant you were included as one of his of the, the sons of the adopter, and it was one, a title of position and status and privilege. Position, status, and privilege. And so what Paul is saying when he's speaking to the Ephesian church is he says, God predestined us to all be adopted as sons with that position, status, and prestige of Christ himself. And so that's why elsewhere he says that there's now therefore neither male nor female, but we are all in Christ Jesus. There's, there's no distinction in our position or status or prestige before our God 
or in the heavenly realms. There's no distinction between male and female. We all share in that great blessing. And those blessings are in Christ Jesus. And can you see how adoption, if this is what we are destined for, to be adopted as sons, can you see how adoption and election go hand in hand? Because if God, his purpose is that we would be adopted as his sons. And if God is God, which he is, and if we are sinners apart from his work, which we are, rebels against his holiness, if God is going to adopt some to be his children, doesn't he have the right to choose whom he's going to adopt as his very own? And doesn't he have the right to demand that they behave in accordance with his likeness, according to his family values, and look the way that he would have them look, bear his resemblance? And that's exactly what he does. He, he is choosing for himself a people so that they can be adopted as him. The reason why we are chosen for hope to be holy and blameless is so that we would resemble his son, Jesus Christ. So we would bear the family resemblance. But more than that, so that we could dwell in his presence. So that we could be his children. He, uh, he's done this um, from the foundation of the world. He wants us to be his children, to delight in us. And notice that it's not something that he just does begrudgingly. It says in verse 6, no, I'm sorry, verse 5. He says, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Our ESV says, according to the purpose of his will. This is a time where the NIV is a little bit better. The NIV says, in accordance with the pleasure of his will. Because the word there is pleasure. If you think that God is unaffected by you and he doesn't care about you or has no warm emotions about you, you're not paying attention because God says that from eternity past, it pleased him according to the pleasure of his will to predestine you to be his child, to choose you, to make you holy, to make you one of his. He delights in you. And perhaps when we read the passage about how all heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe it's not so much that one sinner just so happened to find their way to God and repent. But maybe all heaven is looking at the Father's face when yet another one of his adopted children looks into his face and babbles for the very first time, Abba, and to see the joy and the delight on his face, that his adopted child is his. Um, this is a glorious truth for us, friends. This ought to warm our hearts toward our God who loves us severely and deeply. But we can't miss that, again, this is not independent of Christ. This is only through Christ. Notice what it says. It says, he predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we have come to God 
and he is our father because he is Christ's father. We are coming as adopted sons because he is the true son. We are coming in and through Christ. This is a blessing that is ours in Jesus Christ. And this is part of his covenantal love from before the foundation of the world. But notice something. You probably overlooked this like I did. Back in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember in the Old Testament how God would refer to himself? He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now he gives himself a new name. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All these promises are ours in Christ Jesus. He is now a Father. He is our Father in Christ Jesus. These are wonderful gifts. He is, Jesus is the beloved Son who allows us to be found in him that we might experience that same joy of being sons of our God. This is eternal love before the foundation of the world. And friends, this is, this is wonderful news. This is glorious news. We have been given every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Paul says that we've been chosen in him, chosen in Christ. We've been predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ. And so the question is, how ought to we respond? And the answer is we respond, we end where we began with praise. Notice what he says. He says, we've been predestined to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Friends, we have been given the most amazing grace there could possibly be. We are loved in the beloved. We are made holy in the Holy One. We are made sons in the Son. What an amazing God. What an amazing God. Bless his name forever and ever and ever. Let's pray pray together. Father, thank you for your precious gifts that you've given us in Jesus Christ. But I pray that you would help us to not focus on the gifts that we have in him, but in you and in your glorious uh, self, your glorious nature. Help us to understand these blessings that we have in Christ. Help us to delight ourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might live in a way that is pleasing to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, our hymn of response is 427.